Tell you what I do, Ash, I go and check out some basic facts about your hero, Obama. He's not my hero. I'm how a heroic he comes idiot. <laughs> you didn't plan any this program is staunchly anti-socialist. I am personally shocked by the movement's growing popularity among millennials. Because I'm literally a communist. I'm literally a communist on that bombshell. In survey after survey, young people say they hold more left-wing views than their parents on everything from social attitudes to economics. Why do 44% of millennials think socialism is just a fine place to be? And I've got to be honest, I still don't get this. What do you call yourself? It's, it's a, a fully automated luxury communism. What the hell is okay, that? All right, Perhaps okay. that's not surprising. The received wisdom is that young people are always left-wing. But what if the radicalism of the past few years is genuinely something new? Do you say to yourself, I'm, I'm a capitalist, but? I don't say that. Okay. You know, if anything, I would say I'm, I believe in, in a democratic economy, but. Gotcha. But the but is there. Okay. <laughs> so. The polls show that while previous generations became more conservative with age, millennials are staying left-wing for longer. Old-school publications like The Economist and The FT have written, with some alarm, about the rise of millennial socialism. Millennials like socialism, is the title of the article, until they get jobs. <laughs> so, what's going on? And what are the political implications of Generation Left? That's our big question on the weekly economics podcast today. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year is... Youthquake. Here to chat all about the youth, the millenniums and Generation Z is Kia Milburn, author of Generation Left and lecturer in political economy and organisation at the University of Leicester and fellow honorary northerner. Welcome, Kia. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to have you. And you've come all the way just for this, right? I have, yes. Just Down only for Leeds. this. Yes. Absolutely nothing else. No errands, no nothing. Nope. Great. Thank you. Also joining us is Shelley Asquith, who is a political advisor at Unite the Union. Hi, Shelley. Hello. Lovely to have you. Okay, so we're going to kick off with Kia. We're going to start by talking about what we mean by the word generation in general and when we talk about generations. So for you... Does it make sense to group a whole age bracket of people together by age? Can we look at millennials and Gen Z as a coherent group politically? Oh, well, normally I would say no, but at the <laughs> moment I would say yes. Oh, bloody hell. All right. <laughs> well, look, what do we mean when we mean a generation? We normally just mean like every 20 years a new generation comes along and they, they have different what, like cultural views or something like that than mm. the previous generation. They like yeah. to do different things. They like different thing. things. Some cetera. have more sex, yeah, yeah. less sex, all that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a problem with that, right, which is uh, when does a generation start? When does one generation start and then everyone finish? Mm. Because we don't... Basically, we have babies all the time. We don't just have babies in 20-year cycles. Yeah. You know, we could bring a law in for that. I don't think it would work. <laughs> uh, so, so, it's you know, that, that's an incoherent... In some ways, it's an incoherent concept. It starts with the baby boomers, basically. It sort mm. of fits for the baby boomers because, well, the baby boomers start just after the Second World War. And so the Second World War ends, lots of men come back from war, they meet their wives for the first time in a while. What you imagine would happen, happened. And Any red-blooded male coming red out. Males. Mm. Birth rates went up really massively and it, they sort of stayed up, it dipped down a little bit and went back up again. It sort of stayed really high birth rates for like 20 years and then dropped off a cliff again, the birth rates. And it's to do with, primarily to do with the, the, the role of the contraceptive pill. So women get mm -hmm. some sort of control over 
reproduction and that sort of drops off the so that's a very very big age cohort mm. right and it makes sense it makes sense yeah. and as they've gone through different stages of life you know they've basically had a really big impact on on society you know so then 1960s is a time when we think about a generation gap around cultural values etc mm. the problem is we've just added every 20 years we just add a new generation onto the end of that at the mm -hmm. end of the baby boomers even though generational differences are not normally that important, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and, and recently they have become very, very important. And, you know, the sort of political generation gap you were pointing to mm -hmm. shows this is something really, really quite unusual. The size of the political generation gap is really unusual. And, and so n at the moment, uh, you know, there, there does seem to be distinct generational differences. Mm -hmm. So you have to say, well, what causes a generation? My argument is you get a generation or you get generational differences, they become important when you have like a period of very, very sudden change, really rapid change. Mm. And not just change, but like change in people's idea of what the future was gonna, is going to be. Mm. Right? So like one, one idea of what, of, what, of what a viable and attractive future sort of collapses for some people and it doesn't collapse for other people. Mm. And the obvious thing to point to as one of these events that, of rapid change is 2008, the financial mm. crisis. Yeah. Depending yeah. on how you went into that financial crisis, what we might call a neoliberal model of the future mm. of an adulthood where you go to uni, get a good job, buy a house, have a baby, get mm. a nice pension. Like if you were, if you were older and you have assets, et cetera, that's still a viable future. If mm. you're younger, you're not going to have assets. Yeah. You're just basically not. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem like a viable future. So there's been a divergence in like material interests mm. that attached to how people think the future might play out. And that's what's made young people open to left politics, I think. They're open to a different model of what the future could be like. Mm. Okay, so let me see if I've got this. So the, the, the whole idea that you would have generations that are kind of arbitrarily structured around these 20-year cycles, your argument is that's just a bit daft. But when you do have these kind of seminal events that happen, so it might be the, the post-war period or it might be the invention of contraception or it might be the, the crash, the kind of chasm that that opens will likely create this generational divide, which is around, as you say, kind of different ideas of what's possible in the future and what that might look like and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's the only way you can sort of understand what's going on now. Mm. There's just a phenomenon that you need to explain about, you know, this, this big generation gap's opened up, very, very visible in, in the UK. Mm. So after the 2017 election, there was, a, there was a very famous poll done, which said that for, for every uh, 10 years older than 18 you were, you were 9% more likely to vote Conservative. Wow. And it's almost like a straight line. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that the, the age at which you would cross over, that would cross over, mm. where you'd be more likely to vote Conservative than Labour. I think it was 34 before the, before the campaign started. Mm -hmm. It was 47 when the campaign ended. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of months ago, uh, before the European elections, which has sort of altered things a little bit, but it, that had risen to 51, basically. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, an existential crisis for the Conservatives. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right. So... Shelley, this idea of there being kind of specific political and economic experiences that define generations, how does that, does that resonate with your experience? Does that make sense to you? I think it's an interesting conception, the idea of a generation, because if you are born in that period where the generation is supposed to suddenly change, do you identify, you know, kind of straddling two generations, do you identify with both? You know, how does that kind of play out? But I think what Keir's saying about there being a kind of thing that happens, it's almost like what happens at that coming of age period for that generation yeah. is definitely true mm -hmm. and I think um, the crash is certainly the big thing you know in terms of people's economic outlook as millennials but I think also growing up with the war on terror as a backdrop mm -hmm. globally I think is another major 
thing that's informed people's politics, in particular, like, kind of my generation. But I think it's also worth kind of remembering that pre the crash, you know, people did struggle to get a home. There were still people struggling economically and socially. So I, I think we have to recognise these trends mm. uh, and how and how things have how things play out as people are coming of age inform their outlook, but also it's not the be-all and end-all of, of what happens in people's lives. Mm. We are go- yeah, we're going to continue to unpack the be-all and end-all. Yeah. Okay, what are you going to say? <laughs> no, I was going to say, like, it's, it's important to, to say, it's important to think, like, for me, that this generational difference, it only makes sense when you think about it as overlapping with class differences. Mm. Right? Of course, and yeah. that's so, And that's what we, I mean, we're talking about, you know, a, dec- a, dec- a massive decline in, in the material prospects of young people basically mm, mm. So, so there's this statistic that um that uh, millennials i don't really like millennials but like <laughs> let's use it for short i told people between you don't like 20 the term, and 40 you don't not like millennials <laughs> you can't escape it though, <laughs> both, can you? Both, <laughs> no, I, uh, I don't like the term yeah. but but um so people between 20 and 40 they're they're, they're predicted to be the first generation in, in modern times to have lower lifetime earnings than their, their parents mm-hmm, generation mm-hmm. it's a prediction obviously but it's already evident in the statistics so if you the average millennial working throughout their 20s has, would, or would have earned £8,000 less than the average person from their parents' generation mm. working throughout their 20s. So, you know, that's, if you think about that, that is a, that is a massive rupture in, in our general idea of what should happen. You know, yeah. people sort of work, right, things might not be that much better for me, but they're going to be better for my children. Well, when that falls down, that's a big, that's a big rupture. And that, mm. you can only understand that as, like, as, as, a, as, a, as a change in in class position linked mm. to age. Mm. So the um, working class is getting bigger. The work, yeah. Well, Relatively. Yeah. In my book, I'll do this line from, the, from my book. <laughs> Go for it. In this book, I, I mangle a, 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 a quote from Stuart Hall, right, and I say that um, age is one of, the, one of the key modalities through which classes live. Yeah. And Stuart Hall says race is one of the key modalities yeah, through yeah, which yeah. classes live. And like, so what you might think of that is that like, the common experience of young people having their material interests compacted and their prospects compacted is making mm-hmm. them realise that their, their actual class position. So uh, one of my ideas is that perhaps, like, you know, the, diff- the graduates and non-graduates, which is a big, so that's 50% of people go to university, 50% of people don't go to university, young people these days. That used to be a very, very big divide. But in fact, because the, 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 the prospects of people who are non-graduates and graduates are, are sort of coming together, you're seeing, people are seeing commonalities between mm. young people are seeing commonalities between their graduate cohorts or, or the non-graduate cohorts. And I think you can see that in things such as struggles around, you know, there, there's been unionization struggles around Weatherspoons or Deliveroo, etc. And you can sort of see it's like, yeah, but it's because, you know, people are coming out of uh, degree programs and they're getting jobs in Weatherspoons and they're meeting people who are not been to, to university and they're seeing they've got common common sort of interests. And you can, yeah, so that's what it means, I think. But without implying that if people who hadn't, who all all the people who worked in Weatherspoons had never been to university, they wouldn't organise, right? That's not what we're saying. No, it's not. No, yeah, okay. it's just something I've noticed That's in really Weatherspoons organising is that, like, it, it, you know, they, these people are there are graduates and non-graduates are organising together around and that, a common distinction, ground. That yeah. distinction seems to have been seem to have disappeared. Yeah. Whereas traditionally they'd have gone and done an apprenticeship in, you know, a workplace where there were older generations that also haven't gone to university, and they'd be mm. organising with them. So yeah, yeah, the change nature of the workforce is change things significantly. I mean, yeah, obviously it's just really fascinating and I'm, I'm wondering which one, because I think obviously we could have a whole conversation now about 
class and how we even conceive of what that even means (laughs) and how that plays out. But I want to focus a bit on this idea that kind of age is the new dividing line in Mm. politics rather than class. And how that intersects with the, with the idea of political imagination. And like, so young people that you work with or have worked with in the past, for example, and, and folks that you work with now in unions, like how do you see a, a distinction in what people are able to conceive of as politically possible in terms of what they ask for, what they demand for along those age lines as well? So one of the things you talk about in your book here is, is this idea of the internalization of the there is no alternative narrative and then what impact that has on what then people feel that they're able to organize and ask for along these generational lines. And is that something that resonates with your experience? Wow, I think... Sorry, big question. Yeah, for sure. I think obviously people feel like young people have much more ability to demand things because they've, maybe because they have not been so worn down. But at the same time, um, young people growing up now have actually had it pretty tough. And so there's a lot of reasons why they they ought to feel like they can't demand much. I mean, it's hard to say, really, whether, you know, because obviously now working at a union, we work with people who of all mm. different ages, and I would like to say that they're all very ambitious in terms of, like, mm. the way that society could be restructured. Yeah. Um, but, of course, it's incredibly, like, inspiring as well to see some of the new younger movements mm. organising around all sorts of things, so... Mm, it's hard. It's not hard to make it clear cut, right? But I think no. Yeah. But and also, I'm like kind of wary of saying, oh yeah, obviously it's it's the young people that are the most imaginative and ambitious. Yeah. Because that's or vice versa, the kind yeah. of intergener- intergenerational divide that we like are kind of told to believe in and yeah. you know, put ourselves against each other. But if you look at left spaces, left parties, left spaces, like the World Transformed Festival, I got some data back from the World Transformed Festival about the ages of participants who've gone. And it was like a big spike in the 20s, a big spike in the over 65s. And there's a big gap in the middle, basically. People of my age, basically. Mm. I'm sort of like, um, what do they call it, a Gen Xer. (laughs) (laughs) But like the big big experience of my life was the fall of the Berlin Wall, Mm. right? The fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, a huge part of the world suddenly... You know, what seemed like an impossible, something that was impossible to change suddenly fell overnight. Mm. And, you know, when I, when, when I lived through that, and there was also the anti-poll tax struggle was going on at that time. It was my first movement, which was successful. Let's not forget <laughs> it was successful. I honestly thought that that, like, early 90s period was going to be a period of real progressive change. And it turned out not to be. Mm. Right? And it turned out not to be because what happened when the Berlin Wall fell and when China started to liberalise its economy was that they call it the great doubling of the labor, the global labor force. Mm. The number of workers available to global capital doubled over sort of two or three years. And that is like something that's never happened before and it'll never happen again. It's a real one-off. And of course, you know, if the, you double the supply of anything, the price of something drops through the floor. Yeah. So basically the position, the negotiating position of workers around the world got really severely attacked. Mm. And I really think, you know, you can understand new labor as a response to that sort of thing. Right, mm. this this idea that that change is not possible, radical change isn't possible. So the best you can do is, you know, basically tax the financial sector a little bit and do a bit of redistributive work, etc. Mm. I think you know you can totally see uh, the inability of people whose political consciousnesses were raised in the nineties to adjust. But basically, they can't they can't accept that two thousand and eight happened. Mm. Right? They can't accept that that, that things have changed, uh, and yeah, that, and they can't. So they they just cannot see something like Jeremy Corbyn. Right, mm. you can't, well, what's going on there? We can't. That, they, there's no explanation for that, so it must be a magical explanation. Let's say it's a cult. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, when you when you hear magical explanations, it's because people can't get their heads around what's going on. Mm. They can't. They can't accept what's changed, basically. Mm. And if you look at the, the the political figures 
especially on the left, there's just a gap of like major political figures or MPs from that period, basically, because they're, they, they formed in a different sort of political time to now. And haven't loads of, loads of those people in the middle as well, though, they benefited more from that, yeah. you know, the pre-crash, you know, they've got their houses, yes. they've got their, you know, their pensions broadly, probably, they're doing okay. And so there's just not as much, and not that the people above 60 aren't, but as you say, they had, they were able to see something before and also weren't as directly benefiting from the time of. Well, I mean, the reverse of, if you can ask um, why young people turning left, you have to also ask the reverse, why are older people turning right? And it, mm. it's noticeable, they definitely are. And I think, once again, it's this, you know, uh, uh, age is the modality for which classes live. If, if, you're, if you're a person who is like above 55 or something like that, above 50, the chance of you owning property are massively more mm. than if you're under 35. It's just hugely more. And, you know, there's a, there's a proportion of people who own more than one property, et cetera, et cetera. And that's to do with the fact that, like, wages have been almost stagnant in the UK since the mm. mid-1980s. Mm. And increases in wealth have basically come from asset price inflation, and particularly house prices going up in the late 90s and early 2000s. But also pensions have been financialized, right? So pensions are linked to the performance of of stock markets. And so if you have pensions and if you have assets, your economic interests have been aligned with the financial sector to a certain degree. If your financial sector is doing well and mm. real estate is doing well, well, you're doing okay, mm. right? And that's not true for young people. Young, in, young people's material interests are linked to the, to the level of wages and to the level of social spending. Mm. Over the last 10 years, that has been catastrophic. Yeah. You know, the worst, the, the 2010s uh, will be the worst decade for wage growth in 220 years, mm. right? It's, once again, it's one of these almost epochal level changes that you're seeing at this point, which explains why, mm. you know, age has become so important, I think. But it's not true of all older people either. Not at all, no. You know, mm. pensioner poverty is on the rise. I think it was yeah. Joseph Roundtree Foundation that said that one in six pensioners are living in poverty, mm. and 20% of them are renting as well. It's not like they're all yeah. homeowners. No, so 25% actually, a lot of pensioners them. don't own their own home, so they've been right. actually cut out yeah. from any of this. Yeah, so I've got a yeah. lot more in common, you know, with, with yeah. some of them than... Yeah. Yeah. But I also think it's it, even people, even pensioners and older people who, who do own property, I think they're caught in a horrible trap, actually, because I think for many older people, they see their, the, the guarantee that they're going to get care in old age exactly. right, does not come from the state for them. It comes from the fact, well, I've got a house, and I can sell that house, and I can use that for, to pay for care, which is not a very nice position to be in, because obviously that creates all sorts of generational tensions with with young with their mm. with their relatives who are looking for their inheritance getting whittled away the longer mum lives etc that's yeah. not a nice thing it's not a nice situation for anyone basically mm. well that's one of the things i want to talk more about as well is this idea of like generations being pitted against each other off the back of this so as you say you've got younger generations kind of wanting to be like well i'm and i know them people who are like i'm literally not gonna be anything near comfortable until my parents die which obviously i don't want to happen but like you know it's just it's just really and also this this whole idea of, um, which also I think you talk about here, that this idea of like uh, millennials as it, the snowflake generation, you know, mm. the construction of the entitled millennial and this idea that we're all kind of spending all our money on avocados and then complaining <laughs> about not being able to buy a house when actually, you know, and there's this whole movement like on the kind of centre right, especially in the States, around, you know, like anti-safe space culture and being like we're, we're raising our kids in these bubbles and now they're so entitled and they want to have jobs for God's sake, <laughs> you know, and it's just so, yeah, I just wanted to know what you both thought about this idea of the generations kind of being in conflict with each other and then memes mocking each other online we hate baby boomers and this and that like is this yeah is that also a product of this I think the media is stoking intergenerational warfare yeah, do, do you agree and also yeah. I think like obviously the, the the conception of a generation has been around for a long time but is this generational stereotyping is that 
Is that more of a new thing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, just yesterday I got I got uh, phoned up by the producer for um, Nick Ferrari asking me to go <laughs> on LBC and talk about an article Jeremy Paxman had, had written about Generation Snowflake. <laughs> I said, oh, no, thanks, I'm going to go back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I know... I, it's this whole thing about Generation Snowflake, it just does not fit the facts. Like, can mm. you be over entitled and yet, you know, be, ha, have the, the, you know, the, the, the mm. worst prospects uh, for 200 years for young people in comparison to their predecessors? Mm. No, it doesn't make sense. And in, in some ways, it's like, a, it's like a, an alibi, basically, for people mm. who don't want to accept the, the, the situation that they're leaving their, 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 their children and their grandchildren to grow up in. Mm. But I think the important thing about seeing age and class overlapping and seeing these generations as like a product of, of, of changing class position is that that means it's possible to recompose those class interests by offering other things, right? Mm. So, for instance, if, if older people are th- thinking, thinking that, they're, they're, that house prices are, are really important because that's the only way I can guarantee care in old age, well, there's another solution to that. You basically guarantee care in old age through, through socialised care, yeah. which makes, you know, the property prices mean, mean less to... And be not so important, but you also obviously need to have. So, so this is the other problem, right? If we just if we just build lots of new houses and, and allow young people to buy their houses and reopen up that route, that's going to come. That's open. That's generational conflict because mm. that's going to come at the expense of older people, mm. which is why like housing has to be socialized. You have to socialize mm. housing. You know, have offer people a route not to to a you know a good uh, a good life, which does not lie through property ownership. Mm. <sighs> Yeah. Oh, I'm just like, I don't know which direction to go in. I'm just the snowflake thing, though, I think, like, we basically can't win because it's not just yeah. that we're being called snowflakes who spend too much money on avocados or whatever, but it's also, like, kind of, like, young generation is, like, aggressive, like, looting and, mm. you know, and also in that it's, like, very racialized and, Absolutely, and it's yeah. about class as well. So, mm. yeah. I mean, I think I find the whole... It's it's the intersection of these different trends, one of which is, is yeah, as you say, the, like, the material di- di- distinctions between the generations um, and the kind of need to downplay that material reality with this narrative of entitlement. But then the other part of it is the thing around race and class and mm. identity and gender and all those things and the framing of younger people and millennials as more um, sensitive to these things. And, you know, it's like we need these safe spaces where we can, like, dream of a future where we have houses and no one's transphobic. And that's like, you know, how dare we kind of thing. And they're definitely linked. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's, what's wrong with being sensitive to <laughs> to the reality, other people's realities? Mm. Oh, well, I mean, Not it's, a lot, it, I think. Yeah, but it, I, and I agree, but I also think it's like a set of political interests that serves each other, right? It's like yes. the same person, the same type of people that benefit from the deeply entrenched structural inequality around race and class and gender and all those other things also benefit from not recognising the material reality that we face around all the stuff we've been talking about. So, you're yeah. Jeremy Paxman's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so this this is... This, this leads on to another question, right, about like, because there has been a pattern of people getting more conservative as they get older. It's like a post-war pattern. Yeah. It's not, it's not uh, universal. So in the 1983 election, which was Thatcher's second election, more under 30s voted for conservative than Labour. So it's quite a startling fact. That's a wow. real reversal of the general trend. But it's been a sort of general trend. Uh, and, and, and there's been a long-term trend of young people being more socially liberal, mm. get, just getting more socially liberal, over that post-war period, so so some of like yeah. people, older people getting more conservative is you grow up with certain norms, society gets more socially liberal, 
So you can, in comparatively, to, in comparative terms, you could become more right wing without changing your views because mm, the views around you have changed. Basically, yeah. so that accounts for some of it. But one of the things we'd have to account for there is why has that stopped happening? Why have young people, why, why have young people stopped moving right as they get older? Mm. Right. As yeah. I said, you know, the, 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 this tipping point between when you when you vote, where you're more likely to vote uh, conservative than Labour, has got went up to fifty one, and it's to do with I think, you know, the animating. Um, feeling of conservatism is basically fear of being dispossessed of your property. Yeah, right? it's just like just keep everything the same. Yeah, it's like, yeah no, but it's like yeah, well, you know, you've got you've got your little plot, and you want to defend it from whoever's going to come along. Who's going to come along and take it? Yeah. It, could, it could be the poor. That was the classic. It could yeah. be foreigners. Mm, it could yeah. be the young, young etc. Yeah, yeah. uh, and basically, that, all that three. doesn't all three. <laughs> yeah, all three a young poor together, foreigner. Right? That is yeah. a perfect Daily Mail Brexit. story, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, you could say, well, look, yeah, but the point is young people aren't getting property. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> like they're not getting them. property. They're not getting, uh, you know, pensions, et cetera. So, you know, they are, the, the material conditions which sort of incentivize you to, to go more, become mm. more conservative, uh, they're just not there for young people. Mm. This idea around, like, younger people being more socially progressive, though, in terms of outlook on race and gender yeah. and things like that, like... Isn't that age old, you know, with the, well, in yeah, post-war exactly. in terms of the advent of youth subcultures and, mm. you know. And surely, yeah, because that was another thing that I had, was that, like, like there is just a general adage that, like, young people are left-wing because they're idealistic and they have all these ideas about freedom and equality. Then they get old and they realise that that's not how it works and then they abandon all those ideas. What do you reckon? so depressing. I know. No, but I, I don't think it's true. Yeah. So there's been this long-term trend of, of, of young people becoming increasingly more socially liberal, mm. right? Mm. But for a while, that was attached to young people be kept being more economically conservative mm. than older people. And that held true right up until around 2011. Right? Over the last sort of five to six years, in several different countries at the same time, young people have been matching their more socially liberal views with more left-wing views, what you might call social democratic views around e the economy, economics, mm. basically. Mm. And so that's a new thing. And the, the combination of those two basically produces generation left, in my view. And that, you know, it's a, it's a new form of politics emerging, I think. And on foreign mm. policy as well. I mean, I mentioned yeah. earlier, like kind of growing up with the world on, well, the war on terror rather as a backdrop yeah. um, to your kind of coming of age. You know, no wonder that it was mostly young, well, more often young people that opposed the war in Iraq. There's, there's more support for Palestine amongst young people, for example. Mm. Um, and obviously these issues are linked to, you know, you're seeing young people organising around the climate and they know that the carbon footprint for a war is far more of a threat mm. to humanity than how many straws you use on a night out. Yeah. Um, plastic straws, that is. So, mm, I mean, we talked about this last week. We talked about the youth climate strikers yeah. and how mm. in their analysis in general, it's so much more intersectional than right. anything we've seen in the climate movement before. They're coming out and they're talking about the disproportionate impact of climate change on people of colour in the global south, but they're also connecting it to racist home office policies around migration and, and you know, housing policy and healthcare. They're, like, able to see in this way when they're 17, yeah. you know, and they have this kind of prism intersectional analysis that I've just never seen before on the left. And it's it's remarkable. I mean, it's not a coincidence, though, that it's, so it's youth, youth strike for climate, you know, and yeah. it's school, school children. So this is, mm. you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Mm. But, like, what, what I've been sort of describing is how, like, 2008 has sort of, like, fallen out in a massively generational way. But, like, climate change... Uh, it's got its inherent generational injustices in it. Yeah. Mm. Partly because people of my age have used up a large amount of the carbon budget which is available for humanity to yeah. to use, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the one of the really shocking statistics is like over the last thirty years, 
mankind has emitted more than half of the carbon into the atmosphere mm-hmm. of, than it has emitted ever in, you know, 200,000 yeah, yeah, yeah. years. Since the industrial revolution. Yeah. yeah, and we've basically gone in 30 years from, like, you know, relatively stable climate to the edge of a catastrophe in 30 years' time. Unless things have changed, it's all over. Yeah. Uh, so I've used up a lot of that budget. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. People of my age have used up a lot of that budget on, like, you know, foreign holidays, mm. driving cars, perhaps a second car. But in a way, I always think that that is, like, compensation for the fact that, you know, that th- th- we had neoliberalism. <laughs> so we've had actually, you know, we've had very constrained lives. You know, at work, we have all this like, managerial mm. stuff, etc. You know, the working day. Uh, stopped shrinking in the mid 1970s and it started to expand. Mm. Uh, you know, work at work takes more and more and more of your time. All of that involves, you know, the compensations for that are a TV dinner, you know, yeah. you know, uh, you know, a quick foreign holiday that you can't afford to take a train to because that'll take up half of your. Mm. Do you know what I mean? We should have used that carbon budget to move to a non-carbon based economy, but yeah. we didn't basically, and that has got that's a huge. I mean, young people, that means young people's lives are going to have to use up a lot less carbon than people of my generation. That's a generational injustice, you know. Mm. But also, as well as young people growing up seeing that all the resources are pretty much gone, they're also seeing the consequences of that. You know, they're seeing the droughts, they're seeing floods, forest fires, um, and, you know, wanting to take action over it. And they're seeing that the people who have the power to take action are the people of that generation who don't seem to want to. (laughs) aren't doing anything. (laughs) So, you know, exactly. Okay, I I need to move us on because obviously I could have this conversation all day. As you can tell, I'm very engaged. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about unions and political engagement for a second. So young people might be uh, more political, but there there has been some controversy about whether there really was a youth quake in the 2017 election or not. Um, And union membership among young people is down at around 3%. And so among these younger generations, Shelley, do you reckon that there's a problem with actual engagement with political institutions and with unions? Well, I, you mentioned 3%. I know that um, over, well, since 1995, um, less than 10%, so less than 10% currently of 24-year-olds are in a union, and that has halved since 1995. And that mm. includes between 16 and 19-year-olds as well. So obviously that is partly about the changing nature of the workforce, the fact that there are more zero-hours contracts, we're more, much more isolated in our workplaces, um, and, of course, trade union laws or anti-union laws, mm. both from Thatcher era and the Blair era. Mm-hmm. Um, but also what we've seen since 1995 is a lot of investment in education, far more young people going to university. So there, are, in that sense, there's less reason to join a union because you're not in the kind of workplaces where traditionally 16 to 24-year-olds would be. Having said that, in 2017-18, union membership amongst that demographic went up by about 1%, so it's not a lot, but Mm -hmm. obviously we're seeing some level of bucking the trend. So I think things are looking on the up, but I think that rise probably went hand in hand with the kind of the general election, that kind of feeling of young people getting organised. You also had the kind of McDonald's strikes and actions taking place in workplaces Mm. where young people could look at and feel like some kind of identification with those people. But I think the real problem really has to be with unions and those political institutions more generally that you mentioned in engaging those young people. We can't expect young people to just to do it and to get involved and join. Mm. Um, unions have to be far more sophisticated in how they're actually recruiting people. Yeah, I mean, I do, like, a, quite a lot of organising and activism work with various, like, campaigners who work in unions and out, and, and in organising precarious workers and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things I hear across the board around youth in general is just, like, the unions just 
are so behind the times, you know, like they're just kind of not caught up with like whether it's technology, whether it's attitudes, whatever, in terms of like the, the realities for the lives of young people now, all the things we've been talking about. Um, and that that means that kind of union membership doesn't serve them or offer them the same stuff as it as it would have, you know, back in the day in a different time. Kira, what do you think? Shelley, what do you think? Well, uh, union membership would work for them, basically. Mm. I mean, part, part of the big problem is that, uh, so we, in that in that um, 2017, 2018, union membership went up 100,000 in the UK, mm. uh, which is a big, big rise. But like it, it primarily went up in, in the public sector. Like that's where union density is much highest. And young people are not going into the public sector. They're primarily going into the private sector. And, the, you know, they're primarily going into the, into private sector amongst relatively small employers. Yeah. So that's a big difference as well in union density is like, you know, employees above 50% and employees below 50% is a big, big difference. And, and, and it's to do with like zero hours contracts, like Shelley was saying, it's to do with, you know, like, you know management by app, these de- Deliveroo, these mm. sort of self, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, independent contractors and all that yeah. um, uh, mystif- mystification. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's like basically it's a very different form of work to the sorts of work where we had, you know, classically high union density. And in fact, union strength as well, the ability to go on strike and just stop business mm. as usual happening. Basically, that's basically the, 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 the biggest strength workers have got, you know, is that, you know, you can go on strike and you can stop things operating. That becomes diff- more difficult because the types of work we do changes. Yeah. And in particular, you know, what we've seen in, in the US is it's really huge strikes amongst Amongst teachers, for instance, and that's one of the most difficult sectors to take action in because yeah. it's part of that sort of caring work, where you know if you stop business as usual in caring work, the immediate impacts fall on the people that you care for, yeah, people suffer. rather than on yeah. the managers or, or the bosses, which you want to. And so you have to be really careful about how you do that. And I mean, in the US, the you know the teachers really build up huge amounts of community support before they mm. go on strike, in you know, so that you know they they can maintain that support mm. from the community. But that's I think that I mean we do, we do really need to wrap up. But I think that that is also part of the problem, right? Is this kind of the individualization culture that mm. we see mm. across you know particularly in the in the millennial generation because of neoliberalism and you know it, is that there's just so much less of this kind of collective understanding of collective action. You know, like look at what happened with the tube strikers, like a, a massive part of the public outcry was coming from younger millennials and people who were like I can't get to work you know and there was there just wasn't that same level of like solidarity for collective action and I think a huge part of that is because of individualization but it, I think the climate strike the school climate strike is an example mm. of how that's maybe not mm. the case and hopefully not the case and I know Alice Martin at NEF has been doing some excellent work on yeah. trade unions and I saw one thing that she wrote and this was the headline so I'm not saying that she necessarily wrote the headline but it was um, climate strikers could achieve more if they joined a union or something oh, yeah. like yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, that and yeah. obviously It'd be great if all the tens of thousands of them all joined a trade union, if they joined Unite in particular. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think we can just expect them to. The unions need to be active mm. on the issues that these young people are caring about. And that means on the climate, that means on, on war, anti-war mm. and things like this. And I saw that the UCU was, um, is talking about going on strike over the climate in mm. the autumn, which is fantastic. Mm. It'd be great if more unions were doing stuff like that to show that actually we yeah, are in yeah. tune and we can care about not just workplace policies, but the other policies that are affecting us and that young people are passionate about. I'm in mm. UCU. And so at UCU have definitely endorsed the, the earth strike. Of course, trade union laws are so restrictive in this country that you cannot mm-hmm. legally go on strike unless it's directly about terms and conditions. Right. So we're going to have to work out a way to get around that somehow. Okay. And I think people are working on that now. I really hope people are working yeah. on it. I would say as well, it's, it's this, like, what is so hopeful about that, the youth strike for climate mm. is that, you know, 
at that young age, if people get into the idea that basically, you know, political action, collective political action is the way that you, you, you exercise, uh, you know, change in the world, you know, if you get that at such a young age, then you, it's, you're right, it does not automatically lead to increased mm. union membership, but you've got the, be- the, the base materials, the raw oh, materials totally. in which, in which mm. you know, quite a different generation could uh, emerge, I think. Well, that leads me nice on to my final question, which is for both of you, which is basically, where does this generation go next? So generation left, will it stick together as a coherent block or will we see kind of class divisions reemerge? Will there be other fractures? Will they be generation left for life? Well, one of the big things, one of the big things that's going to come up is, um, is, the, uh, is inheritance. That's when class oh, will God. start to reassert yeah. itself. You the know, aforementioned parental deaths. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. but you know, by the time young people are going to get their inheritance, mm. they're probably going to be quite old. They're going to be like in their 60s. Mm. And the world is going to be very different, actually, because we've got yeah. this climate crisis coming along. But yeah, that, that's, one of the, that's one of the ways. I mean, you know, so I, I'm sort of saying that like, you know, class and age sort of overlap. And, you know, and so basically age or different generations is like a big dividing line in class. Well, it obviously works the other way, right? Yeah. Class is obviously a big dividing line in generations. But we have to see how that works out, right? Well, it's, yeah, surely it's a boomerang. I mean, I feel like a, lo- a lot of my friends now, we're in the same position. We will not be when our parents, you know, when our parents kick the bucket because I'm not going to have anything, you know, but they bloody will. So then it will, you know, co- all come around again. Yeah, well, it all depends how much of your inheritance they spend on social care in old age. Yeah, you yeah, You might yeah, see yeah. it whittle down to I nothing. mean, that's true, yeah. But, you know, obviously we're talking about, you know, into the future. Mm. If, things, if things stay in the same, on the same trend, we could see, you know, class reasserting itself, but reasserting itself in what sort of society? In a society of, you know, really, really, really quite fundamentally changed by, by, uh, by climate change or changed by political change. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Depends what decisions are made politically exactly. and, you know, mm. how we can readdress these issues. And, you know, whether or not these young people stay on the left or not, the, the point is that they're absolutely right. We are heading towards multiple crises, economic, climate. So, they're, yeah, you know, they're going to be proved right. So to wait and see yeah exactly okay well I think that's a great place to leave it Keir Milburn thank you so much for joining me if people want to know more um, about what you do or hear more from you how can they do that uh, I tweet at Keir Milburn mm-hmm. short and simple yes and your book uh, is Generation Left Out With Polity yeah. uh, yes buy, buy that <laughs> buy more, that buy that if you want more <laughs> of this <laughs> nice uh, and Shelley where can we get more Shelley I tweet at, at Shelley Asquith. I don't have any books out, but... Not yet. Not, no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, thanks so much both. Um, that's it for this week, lovely listener. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. <laughs>